Matrix. Reality as you know it will cease to exist. In its place, you will find a new dimension, identical to the one you've left behind, only slightly better. Take a deep breath and open your mind to the magic within you. This is no ordinary podcast. This podcast is with Richard. The Tao that can be told is not the eternal Tao. The name that can be named is not the eternal name. The unnameable is the eternally real. Naming is the origin of all particular things. Free from desire, you realize the mystery. Caught in desire, you see only the manifestations. Yet mystery and manifestation arise from the same source. This source is called darkness. Darkness within darkness. The gateway to all understanding. Chapter 1 of the Tao Te Ching, translated by Stephen Mitchell. Chaos never died. Primordial uncarved block, soul-worshipful monster, inert and spontaneous, more ultraviolet than any mythology, like the shadows before Babylon. The original, undifferentiated oneness of being still radiates, serene as the black penance of assassins, random and perpetually intoxicated. Chaos comes before all principles of order and entropy. It's neither a god nor a maggot. Its idiotic desires encompass and define every possible choreography, all meaningless aethers and phlogistons. Its mass are crystallizations of its own facelessness, like clouds. Everything in nature is perfectly real, including consciousness. There's absolutely nothing to worry about. Not only have the chains of the law been broken, they never existed. Demons never guarded the stars. The empire never got started. Eros never grew a beard. No, listen. What happened was this. They lied to you, sold you ideas of good and evil, gave you distrust of your body and shame for your prophethood of chaos, invented words of disgust for your molecular love, mesmerized you with inattention, bored you with civilization, and all its usurious emotions. There is no becoming, no revolution, no struggle, no path. Already, you're the monarch of your own skin. Your inviolable freedom waits to be completed only by the love of other monarchs, a politics of dream urgent as the blueness of sky. To shed all the illusory rights and hesitations of history demands the economy of some legendary Stone Age. Shamans, not priests. Bards, not lords. Hunters, not police. Gathers of paleolithic laziness, gentle as blood, going naked for a sign or painted as birds, poised on the wave of explicit presence, the clockless now ever. Agents of chaos cast burning glances at anything or anyone capable of bearing witness to their condition, their fever of luxet voluptus. I am awake only in what I love and desire to the point of tear. Everything else is just shrouded furniture, quotidian anesthesia, shit for brains, subreptilian, ennui of totalitarian regimes, banal censorship, and useless pain. Avatars of chaos act as spies, 
saboteurs, criminals of amour fou, neither selfless nor selfish, accessible as children, mannered as barbarians, chafed with obsessions, unemployed, sensually deranged, wolf angels, mirrors for contemplation, eyes like flowers, pirates of all signs and meanings. Here we are, crawling the cracks between walls of church, state, school, and factory, all the paranoid monoliths. Cut off from the tribe by feral nostalgia, we tunnel after lost words, imaginary bombs. The last possible deed is that which defines perception itself, an invisible cord that connects us. Illegal dancing in the courthouse corridors. If I were to kiss you here, they'd call it an act of terrorism. So let's take our pistols to bed and wake up the city at midnight like drunken bandits celebrating with a fusillade, the message of the taste of chaos. Chaos, Chapter 1 of Hakim Bey's Temporary Autonomous Zone. I started this episode with two lengthy readings because if the Tao that can be told is not the eternal Tao, why waste my own words trying to describe the indescribable? Especially when there are already words like Hakim Bey's ferocious, feral, anarchic poetry that doesn't so much describe the ineffable as dance with it. The Tao is often translated as the way, and today I'm thinking about how to get out of the way, resisting my impulse to order, and instead allowing the beautiful blossoms of our guests' wisdom draw you in with their own intoxicating scent. Carolyn Barron is a licensed acupuncturist, herbalist, physician of Eastern medicine, emissary of the Taoist alchemical arts, and founder of Botanarchy, a healing center in Los Angeles, California. Her work explores the ecosystems we find ourselves embedded in, as well as the subtle ones within ourselves, tracing the flow of internal and external energies to create the shifts which enable healing. From wild herbs to acupressure points, to magical mixtapes and prosaic newsletters, the tools Carolyn uses to perform her work are many and vast. We were connected by the strange ways of the Instagram algorithm when I made a post about my ideas surrounding anarcho-Taoism and found Carolyn proudly waving the banner of anarcho-Taoism. We were quick to realize our words, wizardry, witchery, and healing arts were intertwined in a number of ways, like the mycelial pathways joining roots beneath the forest floor. So I can't think of anyone I'd rather have show us the way as together we learn how to practice anarcho-Taoism. Hello, Carolyn. Hello, Devin. How are you? I'm magnificent. How are you? I'm wonderful. I'm so excited about everything that's about to flow forth from this conversation. Ah, me too. To sit at the table with a fellow anarcho-Taoist, what a a treat. I feel like we're standing on a precipice, but like the good kind of precipice, like kids at the top of a sledding hill on a on a like a snow day where we've gotten out of school and it's just all that snow is fresh and full of possibility. Yes. Maybe there's going to be a fat lip. Maybe there's going to be a, a bleeding eye, but maybe, you know, the hands of the gods will smile fondly upon us and it will be pure magic. I'm I'm ready for it. <laughs> Let's dive into the magic. What's our magic word going to be? Ah. Maybe this is kind of basic witch, but wu-wei. Wu-wei. Oh, that's great. I love it. All right. So on the count of three, one, two, three. Wu-wei. 
Wu Wei, all right. Now, for those who don't know, can you define Wu Wei? Ah, no one can define Wu Wei, which is the great ruse. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the ongoing joke that will be throughout this conversation as we Truly. both embrace the anarcha Dao spirit <laughs> and refuse to define things and hide behind inscrutableness at every turn. Yes, but also to use like fancy wizard language all the time. So both things. True. Yes. Yeah. Um, I suppose Wu Wei, the definition I give to my patients is to allow things to take their own course. Mm-hmm. So spontaneous, automatic, instinctive movement that is going with the grain of nature. There's a phrase that um, I stole from these hypnosis tapes that I listen to and now I use with my clients, but you, you have to say it in the, like the sing-song lullaby voice of the hypnotist, but you don't have to try or try not to try. And it's just one of those phrases <sighs> that is just, it kind of sends your mind off as you start to unpack it. But I think that for me is a little bit that heart of, of Wu Wei of how do you sort of trick yourself into getting out of the way? Yes. Oh, I want to put that on a loop and just project it for all of my patients while they have their treatments. Oh, good. Yeah. <gasps> so I don't even know where to start, but I think the beginning is probably a good place. How did you find this idea of anarcho Taoism? Well, I think the entire crux of my life has been to uncover nature's patterns Mm-hmm. And whether that is how nature's patterns exist in myself, but also how to declutter the chaos of culture to find something that's authentic and true. Mm-hmm. And I think like a lot of anarcho Taoists, we come at this maybe a little bit from punk rock. Yeah. Which maybe led us a little bit into Eastern mysticism, which perhaps led us into some, uh, you know, shamanic initiation in which we had something horrible befall us in life and we needed to heal it or overcome it through non-traditional ways. And I, I think this kind of this kind of cauldron is where our narcodaoism unfolds, which is that you sort of uh realize that you at some point need to like know and embrace your unique inner ecosystem. Mm-hmm. And um, remove any physical or emotional blockages that are like interfering with your natural and spontaneous movement. And if you don't do that, then life is mostly suffering. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think, um, you know, I'll, I'll tackle it at the top because I think one of the things like as a wizard, I'm very prone to overthinking that is both my, my superpower and my kryptonite yes. and Taoism invites that in a very strange way because you read Taoist texts especially the Tao Te Ching, and it's about the natural flow of things and accepting things as they are and not changing them. And so you can think of, you know, the flow of a river, right? And so if someone's damming that river, that seems like a pretty good example of going against the flow and, you know, resisting that natural way. But then, of course, me overthinking, I'm like, well, is me wanting to destroy the dam actually resisting the natural flow of the world that has created dams and humanity and all these Ah. systems of power? Like, am I... Like, do I, am I rebelling against the rebellion already? Like, and I just get lost in that. And then I try and let go and dissolve of. 
Oh, so true. Well, nature moves in spirals, so the mind is no different. (laughs) (laughs) The mind will definitely spiral. It will spiral. It is the natural way. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, I, I like to sort of teach my patients that I think that there's a way of existing with that spiral mind Mm -hmm. that can be greatly generative, you know, because it can get us past obstacles and it can make us think in abstract ways too. But I always say that like the rule is first to just like allow for a while, Mm -hmm. (laughs) just allow and see what emerges and then you can spiral minds. But if like you can just sit and be with what is even for a small amount of time and not immediately rush to like fix or understand whether Mm -hmm. or not that's disease states that are erupting in the body or these vast philosophical principles that we grapple with in our bodies. It just, can we allow some spontaneous emergence first before we dam the flow? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's a dance. And I think, I think, I think that idea of a dance is very valuable and seeing where the flow is already like, you know, if there's a group of people dancing, how do you move into that dance as it already exists rather than assuming, you know, the correct way to dance and you must corral everyone to, to do the Macarena with you. Yes. Well, because in a beautiful anarcho-Daoist dance party, everybody would be dancing to their own discordant rhythms, but there would be a perfect emergent poetry and beauty to it. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Like I'd be doing the electric slide, you'd be doing the Macarena, somebody Mm -hmm. else would be doing the cha-cha-cha and in that like perfection arises. (laughs) So I want to, I'm still going to try and even though it's a circle and we're going to just go in loops and spirals, but, um, which do you think you found first? Did you find the anarchy or the Taoism? Uh, I think that the Taoism and and some of that is that, um, you know, for those of us that uh, are essentially non-dogmatic by nature, we grow up sort of like sort of studying philosophies and everything feels forced or mm. it just like I... I studied so much philosophy when I was younger and all of it was incredible, but none of it actually spoke to anything that within me felt like there was truth. Mm-hmm. And and nature has always seemed like the ultimate truth to me. Mm-hmm. And I growing up, there were so many divergent paths in my life where everything was like looking to nature. And I didn't know that had a name until I started studying Taoism and Chinese philosophy in my teens and having that moment of realizing that there was an entire like philosophical system that was just based upon observing patterns in nature and how those reflect in the microcosms and macrocosms. I was like, Oh, this is what I've been doing my entire life when Mm -hmm. I feel like I am my best self. And it, it feels for so many of us that maybe are rebellious by nature that like the only law is natural law. Yeah. Well, I think there's a stripping away that is very freeing. And um, I think philosophy often feels like you're trying to navigate everything that's come before. So yes. someone's like, oh, cool, you're interested in philosophy. Here's a reading list. And they're just stacking books. And then like each book refers to some other person's work. So if, oh, you can't read Heidegger unless you've if you read Kant and you've got to read, you know, you got to read the Greeks to understand any of this. And Ugh. so suddenly you're just lost in everybody else's words. Yes. And I think that there's something about Taoism where, you know, just the opening line of the Tao that can be not, can be spoken is not the eternal Tao is you can stop reading there. <laughs> like, yes. if, if, if you can really get that message, then I think that gives you permission 
to go have fun. And that's what makes me think of, you mentioned punk rock earlier, but I remember when I was first getting into punk and I had a friend that was a guitar player and was like, oh, but these are just, you know, these are just chords. They're so simple. Like, and he was really into dream theater. And I'm like, yeah, man, but dream theater sucks. (laughs) (laughs) That's the the problem. It's like, that sucks. And like the Ramones are fun. So I think there's something that you find when you strip things away rather than when you feel like you have to read the Western canon to begin even having joined the conversation. Oh, absolutely. Because like, you know, the guiding ethos of punk rock is, you know, like simple, authentic, embodied, spontaneous. Mm -hmm. I mean, they are just natural Taoists. I always, whenever I'm referring to like David Byrne or Mark Mothersbaugh, I'm always like accidental Taoists, like whether or not it was uh, explicit or not, you know, I feel like so many of my favorite punk rock songs growing up are really basically like about Wu Wei and about the Mm -hmm. Tao. And it is so exciting to me. And I will constantly use those in my work in medicine. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I feel inclined to quote my favorite, deeply problematic, uh, punk poet, Morrissey and nature is a language. Can't you read? It's truly, truly and utterly. I I dropped that in a whole piece I wrote recently on flower essences and it's, yeah. Yeah. And I think there's something um, that is, uh, you know, I've had this experience when I'm out in nature, especially um, when I'm in a state to really dive in and appreciate it, where I don't know the names of any of these plants. Like I am not a plant expert. I am not a botanist. And so there's a moment where I'll feel a little bit sad where I'm like, oh, I wish I knew these names. And then I'll have that realization. I'm like, this plant doesn't think of itself as that name. Like these are just terms that we've come up with. And it's very cool to know the processes and what the powers of the different plants are in their history and all of that. But also you can just look at a goddamn leaf and be like, awesome. Absolutely. Because that was like the beginning of, you know, botany and science Mm -hmm. is really just the observation and our ancestral forebears who categorized and cataloged all these herbs, particularly, you know, the Taoists who in their pharmacopoeia, every plant is kind of, you know, categorized by these very simple elemental forms that anybody Mm -hmm. could understand, you know, based on its shape, is it pointy and does it go upward? Well, then perhaps it has a lot of fire energy in Mm -hmm. it, you know, is it sort of like, um, does it cascade downward and flow and have like this tuftedness to it? Perhaps it contains a lot of water energy. And then it was very um, guided by taste and color. Mm-hmm. Things that are green are good for the liver and things that are red are good for the heart. So this is like, you know, everybody has access to this rich right. inner, I call it an inner pharmacopoeia that you really learn from just being and beholding and interacting with the plants, which sometimes is more richer and useful than whatever some pharmacologist is going to say. Yeah. The, the list of tables that you're supposed to memorize. And I think, I think it helps to know some of that if you're going to start putting stuff in your mouth. Oh, um, precisely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if you're a prescribing physician, like I am, it is very useful to know that aconite in its raw form is highly toxic and wildly psychotropic. But mm-hmm. if it is cooked or used transdermally, the toxicity is negated and you have a slew of lovely effects that tonify the kidneys. 
Well, that was one of my uh, favorite pet peeves of my alchemist friend who made all kinds of tinctures and soaps and things and would be at markets. And so, of course, these people would come by and go, oh, are these products all natural? I have very sensitive skin. And she's like, I got three different oils that could burn your skin and they're 100% natural. Like... That is not what natural means. Yes. I always say to my patients, like everything is a poison and a cure. You just have to Mm. figure out (laughs) in what percentage. Yeah. Yeah. So how did you end up um, doing acupuncture? What, What led you into that? Well, it was sort of when I learned that there was a medicine that was based on Taoism, I had studied philosophy and writing in like the first turn of college mm-hmm. in the very early we yeah. 18 to 21 era. And, uh, and then I was the demo you know, tape years of college. Yes. <laughs> oh, I'm totally going to use that phrase here too far in the, in the demo tapes, it was all, yeah. you know, writing and philosophy. And, uh, of course, Shortly thereafter, I was besieged by a slew of very persnickety health issues that could not be healed by the Western medical industrial complex. I had a feeling we were going to have that in common. Yeah, it's a true initiation for most yeah. anarcho-Daoists. Um, mm-hmm. I had. Did your is, hair turn white too? Uh, I wish it turned white. I would have reveled that. And most of it fell out because my thyroid was crashed. <laughs> ah, there you go. And uh, I had the trouble of shaving your head, though. Uh, truly, it, you know, there was like most sort of autoimmune diseases, things that erupt and move quickly through the body. And it feels like it has no root or cause. And one day you feel wonderful. And the other day you can't mm-hmm. hold something in your hand. And I you know, was getting no answers. And this was 20 years ago and autoimmune conditions were barely understood and not even looked at or... Well, they're they're mostly women complaining. Absolutely. About nebulous symptomology that can't be seen on blood work, which is, you know, (laughs) a way we constantly get discredited and underserved by Western Mm -hmm. medicine. Um, And then I sort of was forced to seek alternatives and found myself in the lovely embrace of a woman who became my mentor and then my partner. And I worked under her for 10 years and she did acupuncture and herbalism and nutrition. And through sort of like abandoning that you have to be on steroids indefinitely for the rest of your life, or your Mm -hmm. body is going to degenerate and you're going to be in a wheelchair by the time that you're 30. I went, went the route of, of herbs and needles and knowing and understanding my inner ecosystem. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's a concept in sort of Chinese medicine that the symptom is the teacher. Yeah. And if we can come to interact with the symptomology in a curious way, then we start learning about our bodies and what is and is not supporting our Tao. And so we look to things like, okay, I'm eating a lot of inflammatory foods that are causing autoimmune inflammation. I am living out of alignment with nature's way. I'm chain smoking and living off a of gallery wine and staying up yeah. until two in the morning and then pumping myself full of caffeine the next day. you know, and all of these things are stealing my life force. And then you start to sort of learn the things that are leeching your life force and stripping them away. And then this, this other self emerges and one that is, you know, much more resilient and much more embodied and knows how to like, be like a surly wizard and interact with disease states in a different way. I love that. And I think there's, um, 
I think we're going to continuously just find all of these parallels as we as we go through this conversation. I, I think it's the connection is quite profound, and I think we'll just keep seeing these mirror images. But um, you just reminded me of something from my hypnosis training where we have the phrase uh, resistance, is, resistance is feedback. So, yes. you know, that's the former thing of, you know, oh, I have a resistant client. They can't be hypnotized. And it's like, nope, that's feedback that you're doing something that's not working. So you need to try something else and also understand where is this resistance coming from? And yes. I, I see that all the time with people who will say, oh, well, I'm lazy. And it's like, no, you have a different priority. Your Your body is telling you that you need to chill out. Even if that's just eating snacks and watching bad television, your body is telling you that you have a need that needs to be met and you're trying to push it in the other direction. So that resistance is actually telling you something quite helpful. Yes. And I think in the the lens of, of our culture, laziness would be sort of, you know, thought of in this hierarchical way, like it's somehow mm. beneath like productivity and, you know, the, the hyper young war march of late capitalism, but, you know, laziness is medicine. And it, if your body is looking for that, it's, it's, that's part of your little Tao in that mm-hmm. moment to, to figure out how to interact with that without feeling guilty about it and to extract its medicine. I love the story in uh, the Chuangsu about the, the like the fucked up tree where it's that like, you, you know, this one where it's this like tree that just sucks. Like it, it, they kind of like really make fun of this tree where it's it's like gnarled and it's wood is bad. And this person's like, oh, well, you can't use this tree for carpentry because the wood is so knotted and gnarled and it's so ugly that like, why would you do this or that? You know, and they're just ragging on this tree so hard. And then Chuangsu is like. Yeah, because of all of those reasons, everyone leaves the tree alone and I get to sit beneath it and enjoy its shade. Yes, precisely. Like, quote, uselessness is so Mm -hmm. useful Uh because we have no idea what like ecosystems we are supporting in our uselessness. (laughs) Oh, and I think I think I I love the way that you continue to use the word ecosystem, because I think that is just the most helpful model. One, because it's the one we're embedded within. And two, we see that all around. And I think this ties back into so much of the Taoism is we see how often we boldly interfere in an ecosystem and assume that we can, we've figured out the puzzle. These are the pieces that matter. This is all trash. And then we suddenly realize, nope, that forest is no longer healthy. That gut biome is completely devastated. Like those other things that you thought were quote unquote useless were actually integral parts that you just didn't understand. Yes, precisely. I was just writing this morning for my next newsletter, a a piece on embracing parasites. And it's really based on that ecosystem view of the body where I think in our culture, we malign parasites and we approach them with like, we make a cross with our hands and then we Mm. like run to the store to get Paragard and decimate our entire internal ecosystem. But there's all of this emergent research around how uh, you know, particular helminth and warm-like parasites that we've co-evolved with over like thousands and millions of years that they actually offer a lot of protection against autoimmune diseases and degenerative diseases and inflammatory bowel diseases like IBS and Crohn's disease. And that mm-hmm. a lot of cultures that haven't like decimated their parasites out of existence and eat more close to the source and have like soil-borne spores in their food, that they are more resistant to autoimmune immune disease and that these things don't actually have a place in their cultures as rampant as they are in the West. So there is this like assumption 
Mm-hmm. And it's false. <laughs> I, yeah, I can't remember which one it is. I feel like it was like a This American Life episode I heard ages ago, but they talked about someone who was traveling to Africa to like go stand barefoot in the area where like the latrines were basically to get, I, I don't it wasn't ringworm, but like something like that yeah. because getting that parasite was the only thing that actually ended up giving them relief from their chronic pain or whatever the condition was. Oh, absolutely. There's this very radical naturopath that had basically instructed me on how to cure my psoriasis by procuring a uh, <laughs> a worm off the Australian dark web and self-inoculating mm. myself with it, which yeah. is something I will stop there and not go into because the last thing on earth I want people to do when they walk away from this podcast is to give themselves a parasite. Yeah, it wouldn't be the worst thing, but this is not, I, I do not want this to be my gift to humanity, but it was an incredibly powerful initiation into the the sort of uh you know a different approach to the body yeah you know as an ecosystem that requires worms and requires decomposers and you know Taoist medicine is an ecosystem-based medicine it predates dissection and microscopy and all these things that we use to diagnose and treat disease in this culture mm-hmm. and it really looked at the body like a microcosm and expression of the universe and disease states were disruptions and imbalances in the ecosystem and thought of as these weather systems that were raging through the body like fire and water energy and metal energy and earth energy and you know this Oh I is- love I love some good metal energy Oh, truly. You and me both. <laughs> well, I, that brings up um, something that I was just about to uh, broach because I think occupying these spaces kind of on the edge of the standard consensus reality has become even m- more precarious uh, uh, lately because everything is so polarized and extreme and there's so much bullshit out there. And I think it could be hard sometimes to say, hey, I'm endorsing this one thing that seems a little bit weird and out there, but also I have to draw lines and not sign off on something else. And from reading your writing, I feel like you have a good handle on that. So I'm curious about how you practice that discernment and are able to vet and find the treatments that are not in the mainstream that you like, but then not just drink, you know, raw sewage water and whatever other like scam health crazes being peddled in the the streets of Los Angeles these days? Oh, there's a lot of them. Well, I mean, I think the way that I navigate this is is through the way I navigate everything, which is like, I really, if I believe anything, it's that there is no ultimate truth. Mm -hmm. And I approach each of my patients with that guiding ethos. And so for some people, it probably would very much behoove them to drink sewage water. That's like $200 $200 at Erewhon. But for other patients that I can think be... of some people that I would like to have to watch drink sewage water. <laughs> yeah, you and me, me both. <laughs> I, I, yes. So there's not one, there's, you know, something that would be incredibly beneficial for one person's ecosystem would be poison for another. And I think that I am, you know, willing to look at each and every person, each and everything that comes into my practice as useful in some circumstances. Mm-hmm. and detrimental in other circumstances, which makes place at the table for all things, which puts the place at the table for antibiotics when you have a really raging UTI and yeah. like, you don't want to sit with like burning nethers for four mm-hmm. days and you need to get it. And that fast. cranberry juice just isn't kicking it. Yeah, It's just not. And absolutely. I, with certainty, I, 99% of the UTIs I have met in my life and practice, you can cure with herbal medicine, but it's, mm-hmm. a, it's a longer route. Yeah. 
you know, every, so it's just sort of, we have to like navigate and negotiate everything as like a little experiment. And, and so there's always a place for an antibiotic. There's always a place for an antibiotic herb. There's always a place for non-treating and, and they all have, you know, they're all efficacious in certain circumstances. It makes me think of tools, for example, right? If we were all trying to build a house and we're like, all right, we need a hammer and a nail and someone's showing up with a sledgehammer, we could be like, that's overkill. Like that's actually going to do more damage. Like that's not good. And then somebody else is like, I brought a spatula. And we're like, not really the right tool for this. And I feel like we would be able to to see that more clearly, but I think it's hard these days because we don't want to it's personal autonomy has become so contentious that we don't want to step on somebody else's personal autonomy, but then people use the rallying cry of personal autonomy to step on everybody else's. And so it gets very confusing about how to be like, when do you just let somebody drink their sewage water if that's what makes them happy? And when are you like, you have a sewage water pyramid scheme that is very bad. (laughs) And I, I feel, I feel like it's okay for me to like, to yuck your yum here and be like, no, I think you're, you're hurting people. Yeah, because there's the big DAO and the little DAO, right? Mm -hmm. And we also have to assess all of our choices in the ecosystem view with how do they affect our communities and how do they affect our environment and, you know, like the sort of micro harms that can be done and put that into context too when we're choosing whether or not to use a therapy. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, one thing I always sort of remind people about, you know, pharmaceuticals or anything that's been engineered in a lab is that, you know, all of that has to go somewhere, mm-hmm. you know? So it it's, if it, you're not compelled by the hand of the goddess to take a pharmaceutical medication and you don't have to, I mean, that's one less thing that we are creating and that will have to be destroyed in like the bowels of the earth and mm-hmm. denatured and reconstructed into something else somehow. Yeah. 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 I think, you know, we're in a very uncertain time where all of our, structures of knowledge are kind of in doubt and the, the the ones that are the most certain have so many egregious abuses that it's like yeah well yeah i mean that was that was a year ago like don't worry about that that was yeah. the 80s like we're not doing that anymore and then on the other hand we have these traditional things but then they are brought up and refined through all level of modern repackaging branding all of these things that are um not quite natural so it's it's interesting how to find our own sense of truth in this, this wilderness. Yeah. And it's also because so many practitioners are unwilling to even listen to and Mm -hmm. and think about these things with people. And, um, you know, they are, I, I understand in Western medicine, I, you, I did think initially I wanted to become a nurse practitioner, Mm -hmm. but there was a time when I was waiting in my nurse practitioner's office and, I was hearing all of her conversations with her other patients and it was like 10 minutes of like listening to a chief complaint and prescribing something that offered Mm -hmm. none of their patients, any momentary relief or Mm -hmm. any like, like shift in consciousness or any treatment plan that was like, you know, empowering self-sovereignty or helpful in any way, shape or form. It was like throwing darts at a dartboard and hoping something would stick. And Mm -hmm. I was in acupuncture school and I had that moment and I was like, oh, yeah, they don't really have much to offer in terms of like alleviation of suffering or like enhancing the life force of an organism. We're feeling heard, I think. I, I, yeah. I've, I've seen studies that say that when you look at the different medicine practices, even if you're not worried about the efficacy of the 
objective, does the needle do the thing that it's supposed to do, et cetera, et cetera. When you come in for your intake, you're being listened to and heard and taken care of in a way that is itself more healing than feeling like you just kind of got pushed through a, a waiting room into a room where you sat by yourself and you like looked at the poster about, you know, kidneys that was on the wall and then a doctor comes in and is like, ah. so your arms clicking? And you're like, yeah, and it hurts. And they're like, oh, I don't know. Uh, yeah, I guess we'll give you an x-ray. <laughs> yeah, I know. And, you know, in this medicine that I, you know, have the just, I'm so reverent to practice, like the intake is the most important part mm -hmm. of treatment. And my mentor always says anything that moves chi is an acupuncture needle mm -hmm. and words count as well. And oftentimes at the end of an intake, after we have like really hashed it out and a patient has expressed all the myriad ways that they feel like they're suffering and all the strange persnickety things that are erupting in their body, they don't know how to explain. There is like a lightness and a space that enters the room. And you feel that restoration of the ecosystem happen when we get to sort of like verbally purge all these things and feel seen and not feel condescended and to have somebody that's, I'm very nonplussed. You cannot shake me as a practitioner. I have seen, yeah. heard, and done it all. And there's no hierarchy on any of it. And yeah. I think that being beheld in that way, where it's just kind of ultimate permission to be messy. Mm -hmm. And then to also just kind of see that you're not broken and maybe have you're suffering recontextualized in the way of like, you know, a weather system that's moving through the body and weather right. has no meaning. Yeah. You know, rain is not spiteful. Rain is not yeah. happening because they know that you wanted a picnic today. And also if you somehow could wish rain away, you would regret it very fast. Definitely. <laughs> and so the best way forward is just to like bring an umbrella so we figure out how to merge with these states in a way, you know, that may or may not, quote, heal them, but it allows you to exist with them in a, um, you know, it, in a more easeful way. Well, I love what you said about the words moving chi, because that's literally the only thing in my practice. It's, it's all, it's all verbal. It's all words. Yeah. I, don't get to, I don't poke people with needles. I don't get to give them cool herbs. I'm just talking with them and helping them use their imagination to recontextualize things and tap into the power they have to just move that in a different way. So, yeah. I feel like, I mean, I've done a lot of hypnotherapy in my life and I feel mm -hmm. like it's very similar to acupuncture. You're really looking for the like blockages and the obfuscations of Tao, mm -hmm. you know, and you are moving them and then yeah. you're allowing for, for things to flow and move again in accordance with nature's mandate. And that is life force cultivation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There are, there are systems within our body that we're unaware of and they respond to this idea of shifting. And even without worrying about like, what is the cause and what is the effect? Just understanding that going in with that intention of, I want to shift things can produce really profound results. And it's, is well-documented across the board. Yeah. Yeah. I always sort of tell my patients, I'm like, okay, you know, let's not think of healing. Let's think of movement. Mm -hmm. So movement and change is life. Movement and change mm -hmm. is health. And that, mm -hmm. you know, if we are making the right little micro movements over time, that really like, you know, mm -hmm. flows in the direction of healing. But in the yep. beginning, you just, you look for movement and change. Mm -hmm. And 
you know, that's this, this whole medicine is a process of engaging with change in a way that is like yielding. Yeah. I, I describe it in very similar terms because people will come for habits and they're like, oh, how do I get rid of this habit? I want to remove this habit. And I'm like, we're not going to remove that habit because that habit's part of your ecosystem. It's there for a reason, but we want to shift it so that habit isn't the only thing that you can do and then create optionality. So you have an awareness of instead of biting that nail or smoking that cigarette, there's other ways that you can respond. And then you start to feel that freedom. And then once you have those options, it's like, oh, that's not a very appealing option. I think I'll just choose that not anymore. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And I, you know, worked under a trauma acupuncturist for a decade mm. and, you know, studied a lot of trauma responses in the brain. And what traumas essentially do is, is they narrow our scope of experience. Mm -hmm. Our bandwidth becomes very small and we can only choose from like one or two ways of being. Mm -hmm. And yep. coming out of trauma is unlocking the parts of ourselves where we can respond in a myriad of ways. We actually maybe regain choice in how to respond to stimuli in our environment and how to respond to inputs in our life. And then it grows bigger and bigger and bigger as we come out of fight or flight. It's one of the uh, psilocybin researchers who used the great metaphor where it's um, like a muddy road. And when the car drives down it, you get the tire tracks. And if the car just keeps driving down, it keeps going in those same tracks they become embedded. And then it's really hard to drive on that road without your wheels just slipping into those two grooves. And being able to smooth that over frees you from the cycles of rumination and those patterns that are just um, stuck. That is so juicy. I have never heard that one before. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because that's what they found with um, the psilocybin research as they were thinking, oh, we're going to put someone in a brain scanner and dose them up with mushrooms, then their brain's going to light up like a Christmas tree. <laughs> and what they found is there was actually less activity. And so that's what it was, is that there's that, um, I forget, I'm not, I, I'm, I'm very fast and loose wizard. I'm not the person that remembers words oh, yeah, for good. things, uh, but <laughs> it's whatever the part of the brain is that's responsible for your kind of sense of self. And um, uh, it's on the tip of my tongue and I'm forgetting it. You listeners know, you, you got it. Um, but so when we don't have anything else to do, when we're sitting there waiting for the bus and we're not looking at our phone, we're just staring off into space. It's the part that then kind of ruminates. We think about, uh, oh, am I who I want to be? Am I this? And those thoughts just kind of go and cycle. And what those sort of experiences do is deactivate that. So you're not stuck thinking about myself and centering yourself. And you're more just like, wow, that's a really cool leaf. I wonder if that leaf has fire energy or metal energy. And you're just yes. enjoying it for what it is. Yeah, that's what I love about these medicines, be it hypnotherapy or acupuncture, is that they give a momentary disruption in our perception of our bodies. And for somebody that's in pain or suffering from chronic illness or disease, and, you know, even somebody who's in a psychological loop, you know, to have at least that momentary reminder that there's a different experience of the body. Mm -hmm. And you can kind of in the, the Taoist's phrase is reverse the handle of the stars. So take that light that shines outwards and shine mm -hmm. it inwards and have this, this moment of feeling your body in a different way. And that's like, that's the thing that liberates so much health is that we see then that there's so much more capacity. And even if it just goes back to our like gnarled self 20 minutes after we leave the treatment room, you know, like anything else, like it, the nervous system will habituate with these inputs over time. Mm -hmm. And that capacity to sense just will widen and widen and widen. The more times that we step out of consensual reality and into like the sort of the true state of the body and the spirit. 
the way a moment of relaxation can help us understand the tension that we carry so frequently that we just don't even recognize it anymore. And suddenly we have that contrast that we can go, oh, there's something there all the time. Exactly. <laughs> I hadn't thought about it. It's like a buzzing noise that you get used to and you're just like, oh, everyone doesn't hear that buzzing. That's not, Yeah. it's just me. And I think it's for some of my patients, it's terrifying the first time that they feel chi in their own bodies because they're mm-hmm. like, what? Yeah. You know, you put a needle in and there's like, they, they feel the activation and then they, like, they feel that just widening and expanding and moving through the entirety of their body. And it's a weird initiation into yeah. a huge consciousness shift for a lot of people who just wanted me to get them out of shoulder pain. And yeah. it is such an incredible experience to have them understand that like, oh my God, there is like, an aliveness and this like mode of force inside of me. I think that's one of the things that in the world of magic is so important is we're dealing with more abstract things, but then how do you connect those back to the lived experience? And I think when it gets so far afield into the most wooey woo, it's all just abstract words kind of bouncing off each other. And when someone's like, I have shoulder pain, that gives you a way to say, okay, cool, we can use this. And there's clear relief if your shoulder stops hurting, but that also opens the door into so many other things and can be very profound and moving. Absolutely. Because there is a way that you can come into my clinic and we can just put needles in your shoulder and do some cups and you'll walk out and be pain-free. But eventually most of my patients sort of know that they want to kind of discover the why you know, mm-hmm. so it's like this, you know, the Taoist medicine, it offers both this like automatic shift in, you know, physical perceptions, but then over time you can come to like contextualize, well, why did I get shoulder pain in the first mm-hmm. place? You know, and, and I always sort of express it to my patients, like in the elemental view of the body, like shoulder pain is like this wood energy, this upsurging, rising energy that's getting trapped and stuck in the upper parts of the body. Because in some way we are stagnant and we're not able to like live our creative embodied self. And mm-hmm. we have a lack of movement and there's pressure, like an uncorked bottle of champagne and it's all existing right. in the upper body. You know, and then we kind of look into like the greater truths of like, okay, like maybe shoulder pain was a tennis accident, but maybe shoulder pain is a way that we have like, we are like stuck and brittle. Or I mean, using a very physical metaphor, maybe your shoulder pain is you learn to move in a certain way. And over time, just constantly doing that same movement is not working and your body is telling you, you need to learn to move in a different way. Yes. Exactly. And oftentimes that way is like a sort of nonlinear, sort of more flowing way. Well, I'm so glad you brought up nonlinear and flowing because that gives me an excuse to segue back into where did the Anarcha and Taoism meet for you? When did you start to embrace this term and start, uh, I don't know, I I like like the word wizard is very important to me, obviously. And so I think of words as very powerful and we end up with these words that are kind of talismanic of whether that's a a title that we bestow on ourselves or an idea that carries us into new places. And I see that very clearly. Um, And so I'm curious where those seeds first began to sprout and uh, join together. Yeah, I think that there was a moment in time early on in my practice where somebody asked me, like, what is your philosophy on medicine? Mm -hmm. And like all things that are spontaneous and emergent, it just came out. And I was like, well, I guess I'm an anarcho-Daoist physician. Yeah. And 
then I sort of realized, well, yeah, I guess I am an anarchodaoist physician. <laughs> I've been practicing in this way. You know, I practice medicine as a technology of liberation. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, I am trying to assist my patients in, you know, uncovering the self not corrupted by culture and conditioning. And it seems like the phrases anarcho-Taoism was the most succinct way to express that. Yeah. Yeah. And it contains, you know, like the poetry of the ancients and then the poetry of the modernists <laughs> at the same they- time. And I think they balance each other in a really nice way. And I like that you also use anarcha instead of anarcho, which is what I have historically, I call myself an anarcho-Taoist, but I like, I like your version. And I think one of the things, you know, when I was a teen and I was like, oh, anarchy, yeah, this is cool. And then I was like yeah. ordering books from AK Press that are like historical <laughs> anarchist texts. And I'm like, oh, this, this is really tedious. <laughs> like, it really uh, is. And the anarcho-syndicalists don't like the syndicalist anarchists. And I think there's a masculine energy that is very all about like labeling, category, categorizing, and being precise. And I feel like the Taoism is a very wonderful shift to that because it's not anarchism as uh, how do we create a system where the trash will get picked up after the revolution and we're like worried about all those details. <laughs> But like, how do we actually let go of those rules and structures and embrace what is always present beneath those and realize that those are things that flow out of it, but all order collapses back into chaos? Yes, very well stated. I I think that sort of comes with the, the sort of like the premise that the anarcho-Taoist just gives themselves up with reverence and allows themselves to be led by these intelligent embodied rhythms of nature and is less concerned with how the trash is going to get picked up after the revolution, but just trusts that the trash will inherently get picked up because everybody is living in accordance with their death. Yeah. Maybe we'll make less trash. Maybe we'll make (laughs) less trash. And the like, the Tao of the natural crash trash collector will emerge from the cultural milieu. Like mm-hmm. there is a trash collector out there. There's space. There's all of us, you know, my dear friend is a anarchist defense lawyer in Northern California. Bless and, them. Oh, he, he's wonderful. <laughs> I love you, Matt. And I was chatting with him once and, you know, kind of, trying to poke holes in his anarchism of like, oh, like, you know, the anarchists I know can't even keep the dishes clean. How is this going to work? And he's like, oh, Kevin, I don't, I don't think that the anarchists should win. I think the whole goal of the anarchists to be in the state of perpetual revolution that changes the whole system because they are the fly in the ointment that everything else has to them. It's the grain of sand that causes the pearl. It's the irritant that is essential to the larger system. So I don't think that you should have only anarchists And the same way, I don't think you should get rid of the anarchists. I think they are a necessary ingredient that is, you know, the same way that like maybe the Taoist hermit that lives at the edge of the village. Not everyone should go try and live at the edge of the village because then you don't have a village anymore. And you just have a bunch of hermits that eventually realize that they need to be closer together and you've just created a new village. (laughs) (laughs) That is the perfect way of thinking about it. I hope this anarcho-Taoist lawyer publishes a book on this at some point. (laughs) I think they're busy just getting people out of jail for meth possession, but you know. Oh, yeah. Well, here's an interesting fact. Like when you start calling yourself an anarcho-Daoist physician, mm-hmm. it's very interesting because you find that there's anarcho-Daoists that are seated everywhere. That's and how we they are, Exactly. Mm-hmm. And they're not expressing it necessarily. But once they know that they have permission to talk about it, 
I love in my practice, just like all these, like just nascent anarcho-Daoists that once they know that they could say that they're like, oh yes, I am an anarcho-Daoist in the military. Mm. I, you know, there's so, there's so many anarchists out there that are in these places that inherently seem to defy anarchy, but they're doing the goddess's work of holding these uh, two things that are similarly incongruent and polar, and they're living these two lives at once. And it's really incredible. Well, I think we live in an ecosystem where there is the expectation that things will be defined and articulated and labeled and clarified. And so taking on any sort of label, you assume that responsibility. That like, if I'm going to call myself an anarcho Taoist, then I should be able to answer someone's questions about the history of anarchist philosophy. And I should also be able to speak about Taoism. And that's why I like both the term wizard and anarcho Taoism. And then I'll jokingly call myself a fundamentalist agnostic. But, um, <laughs> I think all of those have a similarity where they're all a dodge. They're all saying, no, the point is that I don't have to define this thing. I don't yes. have to be the expert. I don't have to create a label and then go and police who is an anarcho Taoist and who isn't, and you're not doing it the right way and all of that. And it's also a joke. Precisely. Precisely. And I think that that like permission, and this is why I love not being an academic because mm -hmm. I can make these grandiose statements and I don't have to back them up with anything. (laughs) Yeah. It's just wonderful. It's so it's so wonderful to not be beholden by academia um, or, you know, being a Western doctor and having to, you yeah. know, I, you know, we could just like speak and be egregious and make egregious statements and have them just be that and see the way that they seed culture or don't seed culture. And we can just with a wink and a nod send our patients out the door. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. I, I think I'm very careful about it in much the same way you're careful about not telling people to order parasites off the dark web, because yeah. I think there is an issue I see in a cult new age spaces of self-proclaimed experts having no training and just going and hanging out their card and just immediately setting themselves up in a way that I think is very problematic and bad. But for me personally, I'm great. I already know that. And so I feel quite confident in my ability to just hang up my shingle and say wizard for higher five cents and, you know, start, start chatting with people. But I think that's the beauty of embracing contradiction. I can, I can say what I'm going to do and also say that you maybe should do it. Absolutely. Well, I always, and this is, you know, and senses some of my patients who really do want to be told what to do, oh, which yeah. is I always tell my patients, I'm not going to tell you what to do. I'm going to uncover that part of you that knows what to do for mm-hmm. yourself mm-hmm. and enhances your self-sovereignty because there is not a one-size-fits-all prescription for all of my patients. We have to allow people to recover the ability to sense and taste and feel for themselves and there's not a series of rituals and prescriptions that works for everybody in Taoist right. medicine. You know, it, you you have to do the work yourself. And I'm not going to tell you. I will give you my opinion if you ask for it, but I will give it with like a, um, you know, sort of like a little footnote at the end. Yeah, a little <laughs> asterisk. Yeah. yeah, a little asterisk. But um, I actually really relish in doctors when they say they don't know, or they refer Mm -hmm. me to somebody else. Like I trust people who don't know and like surrender to the mystery and say, I, you know, I don't know, but I will die trying. 
Yes. And that's my philosophy with my patients. I won't know everything, but I will tirelessly investigate with you and we will maybe constellate an answer together, Mm. but I don't know. (laughs) I had a client call recently and they were asking, they were like, well, do you have a guarantee? I talked to this other hypnotherapist, they have a guarantee. And I was like, I absolutely do not have a guarantee because I don't know you and you're unique. And so it would be incredibly disingenuous for me to say with a hundred percent certainty that you will change this behavior because maybe you don't want to change this behavior. Maybe you're at a deep down level. This is serving some role and you're going to resist it every step of the way. Like, I don't know that guarantee makes no sense. Yeah. That's, I hope that they, that there was a profound lesson for them in that, because I think the more practitioners like us, maybe just sort of step up to the mystery of medicine, which is that we can give like a set of circumstances, but how things react is unpredictable mm-hmm. that that allows people to understand that there's no guarantee anywhere in life. <laughs> the, um, the, um, my good friend, Eric gave me a copy of, uh, Stephen Mitchell's translation of the Tao, which is the one that I, I, I love above all others. I've read other translations and I even like that this one is, you know, like I know scholars that are like, Oh, this is not the most accurate. I'm like, whatever. This is the one that makes my heart sing. So I'm going to yes. go with it. <laughs> And early on in my wizardry, I was putting so much pressure on myself to know all the things. I need to be an expert on any kind of topic that a wizard should know something about. And reading, um, I think it's chapter 11, but it's the one about emptiness. The emptiness in a pot is what makes it useful. And I realized that that not knowing is so important in terms of creating space. And if you know everything, you are a terrible listener. Why bother talking to everybody if you already know it all? Oh, that's so true. And just like knowing it, it creates fixed states of being. Mm-hmm. And then you miss the numinosity of like being around you and experiencing the world through like, you know, the eyes of a, of an initiate, you know, right. it's, it's like different. Yeah. Um, yeah, I really try there's, um, you know, it, if you've ever visited an acupuncturist or a physician of East Asian medicine, we read patients' pulses in our mm-hmm. intake. So we put three of our fingers on each of your wrists, and we're really looking to see, you know, how chi and blood are flowing through your body and relative temperatures and the different states of um, the organ systems. But a lot of times, like you'll do this at the end of an intake and you already think, you know, you're like, ah, I know this patient's diagnosis. They have like, like heart fire and it's, it's it's harassing their shin and da, 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 da. And so you go and you have that idea. And so you touch the pulse and you look for the fire in their pulse and you look for their heart beating really fast. And then you miss the whole point. It's it's this incredible state of just like thinking you have an idea, but you have to enter the pulse field in this way that is empty. And I always think about the Tao Te Ching bowl part. When I walk up to a patient, I'm like, okay, make yourself a bowl, like allow their pulses to feel like fill you up and don't go in there just being like, I know that this patient has Hashimoto's disease and I'm going to look for it in the pulse because something totally different might emerge and you're going to miss it. And then you'll be a shitty wizard with a shitty diagnosis and no one's going to get better. Exactly. Yeah. You don't want to be a shitty wizard. No, you don't. Or maybe you do occasionally. Like in a fun way. I'll I'll get shitty sometimes, but that's the, again, embracing contradiction. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I'm curious um, what books or works have really like resonated with you and you found this spirit within? Yeah. Um, well, my 
like treasured translation of the Tao Te Ching is the Ursula Le Guin version. I thought you were going to bring that up. Uh, yeah. I know. So basic. So typical. But no, no, yeah. no, no, no. I think it's a good one. <laughs> no, no, it is. It is. She, Scholars um, also hate it. <laughs> I know. They hate it. Psychologists like, are like so mad about this. No. Oh my gosh. I know. And anytime scholars hate something, I typically love it. Um, it's like a banner ad. It's like scholars don't want you to read this translation. A hundred percent. And you know, it's going to be good and you know it's going to be juicy. Um, yeah, this one uh, weird trick to anarcho Taoism. Precisely. That's exactly what you should do when you're looking for a book list. A bibliography yeah. is looking at all the banned books of the academics. But mm -hmm. I really love people who sort of shepherd the ethos of anarcho Taoism and the work that they're doing. And, you know, like there's no books. Well, maybe outside of like Hakim Bey, like there's no actual books written on anarcho Taoism, but there's people who are living by that. Like I think Yodorowsky is one mm -hmm. of them. Yodorowsky's Psychomagic is like a very, um, you know, sacred tome in my work, as mm -hmm. is the um, Pharmacognosis trilogy by a, what I would call uh, a Gnostic botanicist, okay. Dale Pendle, who is a botanist and an herbalist who wrote a series of books where he ingested every known psychotropic plants wow. in all pan-cultural traditions yeah. and basically allowed the plant to speak through him. And so he made it a text of this, these Gnostic uh, parables about these plants, but he's also a chemist and a botanist. So it's interjected with chemistry and science, which I think is, you know, the work of the Anarcho-Daoists is to merge the opposites. And he's an incredible writer. Um, I am reading David Graeber's fragments of an anarchist, uh, mm. anthropology right now. Mm -hmm. Um, time will tell if that's useful, but his work is, I think, you know, another person that is straddling many worlds. And I appreciate yeah. that. Um, and of course there's Alan Watts's Tao, the watercourse way, which I think if anything hits the like heart and soul of what we're talking about and all of its mm -hmm. various manifestations, it's, it's that book. It's perfect and digestible and should be in everybody's house. Alan Watts is so fun because I love his lectures and it's funny you even see with like people that are trying to like cut them and place them in things because he's like oh we're going to talk about this today and then it's 45 minutes of something completely different <laughs> and then it's like him being like and then when's lunch and then you're like I guess that was the lecture on this but it was not <laughs> it precisely flows. yeah yeah and it um, teaches you how to flow and to think of these non-linear ways which is mm -hmm so important. And I mean, I'm writing a book right now and everybody is trying to beat the non-linearity out of me. Mm. And it's, um, so I'm having to divorce myself from the publishing world because I do not want any of their feedback because yeah. I, I don't want to teach people how to think in linear ways about the body. <laughs> Spoken like a true wizard. <laughs> <laughs> how about you? What are your favorite books? Well, I, I'm so glad you brought up Le Guin because uh, I think The Dispossessed is probably the best book on anarchism I've ever read um, because I think sometimes through fiction, you can actually get so much more than a dry, you know, explainer text can convey. And I think The Dispossessed does a wonderful job of helping you see what a world would be like where these were the values that were taken for granted and capitalism and these other things become alien. And that is one of those things where it's like the book is itself a drug. And when you go out into the world and you see how everything is transactional and we're always trying to extract profit from every interaction, 
you suddenly go, oh my God, that's not the only way that it could be. And that is, is wonderful and profound. And then I think um, you already mentioned Hakeem Bey, but I think Hakeem Bey's Taz is, again, another one of these ones where instead of being like, anarchism is defined as, and then here are the five points of anarchism, it is just a poetic screed that just like races across the pages and like splashes out of the book onto the floor and is just so beautiful and moving. And I think that captures so much more of the spirit than anything where I get, you know, there's the old joke about humor is like dissecting a frog. You can cut it open, but then it doesn't hop anymore. And, <laughs> and so I think that's another one where, yeah, like that gives you that spirit. And I also like that idea of, I think of um, Bay's ontological anarchism as like the image that always comes to my mind is the, the like flower that's coming out of the crack in the sidewalk yes. and sort of thinking about we nature finds a way like we can find these moments wherever we don't have to overturn everything to feel that relief. You and your friends can drive out of the city and sit beneath an oak tree and experience an afternoon of non-hierarchical anarcho-Taoism and then come back to the city and be subjected to all of the other transactions and profit motives and things that, you know, are a bummer, but we still have that freedom and that's always kind of within us. Yes. That's so wild that you said that because I my entire next newsletter is essentially about anarcho-Daoist things you can learn from an oak tree. <laughs> it's all about the oak tree. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I think what is like Merlin gets trapped in an oak tree um, in, in some of the Arthurian legends. That's yes. Up, which, you know, hey, there's worse fates. I'd be an oak tree. I'm fine with that if you're listening out yeah. there. <laughs> put down roots and branch out. Exactly. I think we should um, we should pour one out for Hakeem Bey because he passed... Um, I think it was two weeks ago. Oh, I had not heard. I, yeah. And he, um, he was, I think, suffering in ill health for the last two years. And yeah. I think it might've been a heart attack, but, um, but yeah, he is recently crossed over and now he's an ancestor that we get to call upon in oh. all of our work. I'm hearing it here first. That was always someone that I was hoping I could one day have on the podcast, but then oh. I would like, I would like half-assedly Google and then like get distracted by something else. So lesson learned about don't half-assedly Google when you want to book a podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think with that, it's time to get down to our spell. And I'm so excited to see what mysteries are about to pour forth. What can our listeners do to bring a little bit of the anarcha Taoist spirit at home? Mm. I would say burn down a McDonald's, but I think we want something a little bit, (laughs) a little bit simpler. Well, we can look to our uh, ancestral forebears of anarcho-Taoism, who are the 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 sort of Taoist archetypes of anarcho-Taoism, mm-hmm. which are the the free and easy wanderers, mm-hmm. who uh, believe Hakim Bey actually wrote a lot about, which were the the Taoist mountain hermits, who essentially uh, their goal philosophically was to strip away strip away like the chaos of culture and to meander through nature with like spontaneous bubbling poetry at all times. Um, and that free and easy wandering is a way to get close to the Tao because you just allow yourself to, to, you know, meander and wander aimlessly and see what, what beautiful spontaneous gifts nature bestows upon you. Yeah. So I I think, I think this is a great spell. I, I, I'm going to, add a little bit from earlier to it. So 
I think the spell is to go wander aimlessly. And as you try to wander aimlessly, I invite you to just remember the mantra of you don't have to try or try not to try. Because I think when you wander aimlessly, you're going to have to resist the urge to think about where you're going and know where you're going. And that, that struggle itself will be the, the conversation that you have. Yes. And if you want to say it or sing in another way, please. Uh, in the gospel of Devo, twist away the gates of steel, unlock the secret voice, give in to ancient noise, take a chance of brand new dance. Twist away the gates of steel. <laughs> same, same, but different. That's beautiful. Can we, can we end with a joke? Yeah, let's do it. I don't know any. <laughs> I got one. I got one that Perfect. I came up with for this episode. Bless you. How is acupressure like wizardry? I don't know. How is it like wizardry? They don't have to have a point to be effective. Oh, bada bing. <laughs> <laughs> Carolyn, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. For more of Carolyn's magic and incredible writing, visit botanarchy.com. And I just want to say that this episode is dedicated to Peter Lamborn Wilson, aka Hakeem Bey, who I started with a quote from at the beginning of this episode. If you've never read Temporary Autonomous Zone, go read it. It is poetic, it is beautiful, it is moving. It is one of my favorite piece of writing of all time. So if you want to do a little bit of magic for yourself, go get a copy of that book, read it, love it, and then pass it along to somebody else that you care about. I think I've had four copies at this point because I just keep shoving it into people's hands. And now you're those people. I'm shoving it into your hand. And if you want more of my own weird blend of anarchic magical wizardry, visit patreon.com slash this podcast is a ritual because this podcast is a ritual lives by your generosity and donations alone. We don't take ad money. We don't fuck with corporations. Just me being a weird wizard. So if you want to get some cool bonus content and support our magic, patreon.com slash this podcast is a ritual. And with that, I leave you to find your own way. And just remember, There's nothing you have to do or not do. Just be you. (laughs) 